it is Adam. Welcome back to Bringing It Backwards, a podcast where both legendary and rising artists tell their own personal stories of how they achieve stardom. On this episode, we had a chance to hang out with Jono and Darren of Joda over Zoom video. Jono is one third of Above and Beyond, the uh, very, very successful electronic group Above and Beyond. And uh, Jono talks about how he got into music. You will also know Darren from the many, many, many hit records that he's produced. He's done a ton of film scores. So both Jono and Darren have wildly successful careers. They talk about how they met, a couple records that they put out together just as standalone singles, and the friendship they've kept over the years is how Joda was, was formed. Above and Beyond were asked to work on a score for the film The Last Glaciers, and this was like 2019, right before 2020. Uh, so John was like, well, I have the perfect person to help us on this. So he called up Darren and they worked on this film score together while working on the score. They just decided, Hey, let's try something. Let's just write some music together. They wrote a couple records. It was sounding awesome. The pandemic hits. Now they got a ton of time to work and that's how Joda was formed. They've got their debut record out. We talk about how that all came together using analog versus digital recording. And we get real in depth about the process of putting this album together. You can watch our interview with Jono and Darren on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards. It would be awesome if you subscribe to our channel, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. And if you're listening to this on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, it would be awesome if you follow us there as well and hook us up with a five-star review. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're bringing it backwards with Joda. Hello. Hey, what's going on, guys? How are you? Well, thanks, Adam. Hi, I'm Rory, the product manager on the release. This is Darren. Um, hey, and Jono's just about just nipped to the toilet, but be back with us in a second. <laughs> okay, cool, 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 cool. Uh, nice to meet you all. Thank you so much. Likewise, yeah. Thanks for doing thanks for, the uh, uh, interview. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, it's a podcast about the the both of you um, and your journey in music, how you cool. guys met, and then of course the album's coming out. And I love uh, what you guys have put out thus far. I've been listening to it all morning. Brilliant. Yeah, and have I really heard, love. Sorry, go ahead. Have you heard the whole album, or is it just the singles? I only heard uh, from. I've only heard five of the songs thus far. So, um, oh, yeah, the it. ones that you guys have put out, and then I've put and I've. Adam, hi Adam. Hi. I, I is do you go by Jono? Jono, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I just wanted to double check. Yeah, awesome. Oh, it's a shame you didn't get you didn't get the whole album then. I I don't think I did. I got a press release that had. Sure, I can send it over, Adam. Pretty send sure I, I yeah. did it on. Yeah, I just have the. Um, yeah, I don't think I have the whole thing. Track. I have certain tracks, so I don't think I have the full record. Um, but I would love to chat about the full record. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> Killer. Yeah, and like I said, I really love what you uh, have done so far. And I and I dug up that song that you did. Uh, let the shine. Uh, the shine the light in. Light in. Yeah, and I love the um I'm I'm kind of nerd on this on like uh soundtrack type music and that one that you guys did for the that glacier film is really cool. Oh cheers. Thank you. Yeah. 
I'm definitely excited to, to, to chat with you all. Um, I don't know if you mind talking a little bit about uh, Above and Beyond just because it's kind of part of your story, but we're not going to stick on that very long because this is a podcast about your guys' journey in music and then, again, how you met and how you got to where you are now. Sure. Sounds good. Sweet, sweet. So, um, Darren, why don't, you, why don't you start? Where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in London, uh, okay. in Hampstead, and... Um, be pretty much lived here most of my life, uh, all my life, apart from a few years in Leeds. Um, okay. And uh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> and how did you get in? <laughs> what else to say apart from that? Well, well uh, I mean, how, how about music? How did you get into music? Um, so I started learning piano when I was really young. I was about literally four or five years old. Um, and... Um, you know, uh, my great grandparents they had a baby grand, and they, and I used to just hit the keys. Oh, and they wow. went, Somebody sent it to piano lessons for Christ's sake. We can't packing <laughs> this thing anymore. So they did. They well, they sent me off, and then uh, and then I kept doing music, and I grew up with it and learned other instruments, um, and then went to university where I didn't do music actually. I did computers, and then um, and then I got into music theatre for a while, did some jobs, and then finally, uh, back in the start of two thousand, I had my first. Uh, breakthrough hit record with a project called Angelic um, and then had a dozen or so top 40 records after that and it was back in those days those early days when I met Jono as well in the right at the start of my career okay cool cool well you piano at that early of an age and then having a grand piano access to a grand piano uh, do you come from a musical household at all like was that something that was kind of pushed I would imagine a little bit at least at that age no no actually no I think my my, apparently my my great-grandmother was a vaudeville singer and that's that's really was about it um i just had this thing i I was i was actually a pretty awful student because when when i was supposed to be practicing grades and things i ended up just going there and making music and messing around on the piano and whatever and i used to even hijack my own lessons my teacher was a composer and he'd go well what have you practiced i go but yeah forget all that (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I make this riff up and you go oh all right we'll look at that instead and then they go well why is he not doing any what's going on with the exams and you go well he keeps he's hijacking these lessons we can't so anyway so yeah um <laughs> not much in the way of family uh pedigree no but um but just something i was very much drawn to yeah that's funny that you just didn't care to learn the you know the standards or whatever they're trying to teach you you're like oh, no i'm gonna write my own stuff <laughs> well it kind of, and funny enough though when i got to an older age um, i started wanting to learn that and then, then i got into advanced orchestration i had private tuition i did master classes at, at universities and um so i got went a completely different way with it but when i was young when when it's being forced down your throat you know, and you're at a young, impressionable age, you may not be so keen to grasp the bull by the horns, but I found as I got older and needed it more in my line of work, especially when it came to film scoring, which I did a lot mm-hmm. of, um, it was, you know, obviously very useful. So Sure. Very, very cool. And what about you, Jono? How did you get in, or born and raised, actually? We'll start there. Yeah, that's funny. There's a lot of parallels with what Darren said. But um, yeah, so I was born in Devon in southwest, in the southwest of England. Um, okay in uh, a city called Plymouth and uh, kind of grew up in the South Hams, which is part of Devon, moved away from Plimpton and Plymouth area quite young. And similar to Darren, um, when I was a, when I was a kid, when I was, you know, four or five, I had imagined that sort of age, um, I was playing on the piano a lot. And my gran actually lived in the same house as us until that age and uh, taught me how to play the piano. 
but oh, wow. my parent, I was more interested in kind of doing my own thing than learning the pieces, but my gran wasn't too pushy with that stuff. But then later on, other music teachers were, but I always kind of sort of forged my own path. But I, I remember at that age, uh, my parents had a lot of vinyl um, and stuff like, um, you know, it would be like Dire Straits on the one hand, but then and then there was Pet Shop Boys and all of these kind of um, electronic and and bands as well, you know, proper mm-hmm. bands. So it was the, there was a kind of melting pot of, of music there for me to listen to. And I remember sort of miming on the, on the sofa to Jean-Michel Jarre um, and, and seeing some of his concerts at places like, um, you know, the Docklands in London, there was a very famous Jean-Michel Jarre concert that had a lot of grandeur about it with lasers, lasers and, things. and the big yeah. 360 keyboard he had. Yeah, exactly. So oh, that's cool. very similar to Darren in the sense that, um, you know, that there was a theme, I suppose, growing up of, of sort of, being taught stuff but actually rebelling a little bit and kind of doing my own thing and being being some of it came from a degree of laziness as well and like Darren I feel that later in life I've you know wanted to learn more about music theory although I did do grade five music theory for some reason that um I think people had, no, had I did. to do it as yeah. did I. Uh, <laughs> I I did, so I did know I did know quite a bit of music theory growing up yeah. as well but okay wasn't the kind of core of what I was into. It was mm. more playing by ear, listening to stuff on the radio, recording stuff off the radio on cassette, which is now. Oh, made I remember doing that. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, playing, along with, playing along with stuff. Um, there was a lot of that going on, jamming with friends and, you know, but growing up, it was, you know, from a fairly humble background um, and never had the money to buy bits of equipment. So I kind of would, you know, mow the lawn and do little jobs to kind of save up. To, to buy a drum machine from a secondhand shop and things like that. So it was, there was always that. I was still doing my lawn if you want. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, um, I remember going to the theatre uh, when I was probably seven or eight and hearing um, the, the music director at the back playing on a synthesizer. And there was just, you know, he was sweeping the filter or something. Mm. And I remember just hearing this sound and going, I want to do that. You know, that sound, I, I want that, you know, I want to be able to make those noises. Um, and those kind of little moments that you have when you're a kid, you know, have a huge impact, I think, on things that you yearn for. And, you know, it's no coincidence that there's a Roland Jupiter 8 sitting in there, you know, finally. Oh, cool. Um, because it's thing, things that you you kind of, that nostalgic thing that you grew up with right that you kind of try to live out as an adult i think um mm-hmm. i've been in quite a lot of that but i don't know if that answers your question no 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 that. totally yeah. no i love that uh, it sounds like you said you were jamming with people too though was were you in a band or all at all like uh through those early years yeah i mean um even when i was seven or eight i think we had a god was it i think it was called generation four our little uh primary school band and then um i think that was right and then um, when I was a sort of teenager, I played in rock bands and stuff, played guitar and, and keys as well. And we did a lot of covers, um, did a few gigs and things. And that was always fun. You know, lunch times were spent in the music rooms. You know, there was a bunch of friends and we'd just jam in the music rooms in lunch times. And, you know, there's a degree of, I wouldn't say misspent youth, but, you know, um, I always knew I wanted to do music. So I was so focused on that. You know, maybe there were times when I missed out on the, the sort of just normal school stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Because no, it so seem, didn't seem to matter, right? <laughs> like, yeah, no, you make up for it later on, don't you, as well? And um, <laughs> yeah, so that was just always I was just always passionate about music, both electronic music, but also I was into like I would say jazz influenced music. I wouldn't say uh, I mean I love going to a jazz club and, and seeing um, a band play there, say, but you know stuff like Steely Dan, for example, that mm-hmm. I would regard as rooted in jazz, but kind of pop music. Mm-hmm. Like, pop it not pop in the modern sense but you know pop in the yeah. kind of classical sense um so there was always that side of music that i was interested in and then and then yeah the electronic stuff you know like the, the jean-michel jars the pet shop boys who i would say amazing songwriters as well um depeche mode new order all those mm-hmm. bands so uh i've always had i've always and i still have an interest in you know many different genres of music i can always find something to enjoy um in in different styles of music mm-hmm. and personally yeah and darren were you ever in a band it sounds like that was uh music kind of came later for you or I, I when it come, came to that I, sense i went to i did wasn't a, i was in a band at university we would do gigs and things for events that happened there and we were pretty awful uh, <laughs> what would you play were you the did you play I played, keys no, no, and occasionally clarinet which is an old in the band oh. yeah things like um Oh, I don't know. It, it, we would do some like um, blues stuff sometimes. So there was a call for it. But um, <laughs> I just remember it was be like one shocking thing after. I remember one, <laughs> one time the drummer, I remember it was like thinking that he'd, 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 he'd always drum too fast. <laughs> so, and he ended up break, and this pint glass was next to him, which smashed. And then I realized all the electrics were open around my feet. So I could see it dribbling its way to me, thinking I might just die on this stage. Um, it was of that level. Uh, so and then, and then when I went to um when I went to university, I did a lot of music theatre, and I actually did stuff at Sadler's World and music directed, um and we did stuff with orchestras. That's when I kind of started on the orchestra side. Sometimes I'd actually be in the I'd be conducting the orchestra, um but that really my band experience kind of ended <laughs> at that at that point in time in my life, and it became more me as a hermit in a in a production room. Yeah, I did some amateur dramatic stuff as well with theatre, sort of, you know, playing keyboards. We did, um, I'm trying to think, I think actually with the school, I did some Andrew Lloyd Webber stuff, um, Joseph. And then, oh, yeah. and then, but then we did some other stuff with the adults as well, like mm. doing the music. And that's kind of a baptism of fire, sort of having to, having to be able to just sort of busk it sometimes because I was never that well rehearsed, but I kind of like busk my way through a lot of it. Yeah, no, it's... um. Yeah, I, it was one of the. It was it, it, those, uh, apparently there are recordings of the, this group I was in. I, I think I, those up. I, 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 I was going to say, I'm going to have to do some burn, burn, deeper research apart, here. Bury them in different parts of the world so they never come back together and make a complete recording <laughs> again. Fragment um, data. Yeah. Fragment it. So, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, when did you? Because um, uh, John, obviously, you did. You started, or you know, later on, above and beyond began a thing, and, and it was more of a that side of the industry whereas darren it sounds like you went more of the the scoring route as well and then you both kind of came together with with the last glacier in this in a similar sense yeah i mean we i mean i was doing a lot of dance music for about 2007 and i had a good run of hit records i worked with um you know like did Roger boy george uh, i had quite a lot of artists like charlotte church who appeared on my records had a lot quite a lot of relative UK yeah, more, more charts success than above and beyond well but certainly back 
we 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 just it just was it was a good period mm. where Radio One was very receptive to mm-hmm. certain types of music and. Um, so that but was that was, was that more on the like pr- you'd produce the records and then they would come out. It wasn't more on yeah, the like, I mean, touring I, 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 performance I, side. I guess is my question. Uh, I was the artist usually signed to the label, and then I, the the art. So, so if if it was Charlotte Church or whoever else, would they would be the featured artist? Um, okay. The, so like the the first project with Angelic was on um, um, the uh, uh, British DJ one a uh, radio one DJ at the time called Judge Jaws. His wife Amanda was the singer. In that case, people considered Angelic as a group even though I was originally signed as the producer. Um, and then we did actually do, actually come to think of it, we did do PA tours and stuff, and they were also not particularly amazing. Uh, but um, that those were the early days. And then, and then it was, but it was mainly production, yeah, being mm-hmm. a producer with artists coming in to sing, mm-hmm. sing on those records, which is kind of, you know, I think that's kind of the, the way a lot of what the way our business worked was like that. And I actually met Darren okay. when, um, when he was doing his dance stuff. And I heard Angelic, It's My Turn, which is, it's got a great chord progression and, and riff in it. And um, I met Darren in Japan. We were both touring independently, but kind of on the same gig um, in, in Japan. That was one of our first gigs as Above and Beyond. Um, and so that's when we got talking. And then after that, we wrote a track called Let the Light Shine In. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that song. 2000, 2001 or something like that. Yeah. Because um, we just, we connected musically and mm. I had a lot of respect for, you know, when I heard Darren's records, I, I, it's just one of those things when you, you can tell people know what they're doing and I just, you know, instantly connected with his music. And yeah, it was, I think we both had a very shared view of, you know, there's a certain mindset, I think with, with an appreciation of certain types of music and, you know, and so John and I always had that kind of um, same kind of appreciation and respect for each other's ability to appreciate that, which I think is also key. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's why we we always, we worked so well together very early on, um, and have continued to do so now. Sure. What was like, uh, Darren, for you? And then I'll, and I'm going to ask you the same same question, John. Is if what was like the first moment that kind of gave you some validation with what you're doing musically to where you were like, oh, this, you know, either like this could be a career for me, or this is definitely like something. I, like that's working in, in the sense of like, okay, I'm putting out these records and no one cares. And then you finally get like, oh, wow. Or if that even happened, I mean, I'm just curious when that happened. For but I, 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 as a, I, when I left university, I like, I had some opportunity things turned up in the music business. I made, cause I was doing my own demo tapes and hiring my own studios and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I got messed around quite a bit. And because I got messed around, I actually went and got a normal job, like IT job and all that, but I never stopped doing the music. Um, and it, and at that point, I was like, it was going to take a lot now for me to really go off and make this a career. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was still doing it. And then I met another manager and he was like, you, you know, you, you should be doing this. And, and I still didn't jump ship. And then eventually I had a, this quite big project blow up the first one. And then it was like, OK, that, you know, uh, that financially someone's saying just stop doing your job for five years. We'll look after you. It's a no brainer. Do I want to turn up? you know, and, or do I want to do the thing I love and be paid to do it? And, you mm-hmm. know, and, and the thing is, I knew that once I did that, I would never look back. And, and I, and I haven't, you know, I've always been very passionate about it, but it is, it's a, it's a tough career. There have been ups and downs. There are always, there, there are often are for many people. 
Mm -hmm. um but i never regret a second of it and it's been so many highlights through it all so sure with that first hit record like how did that kind of happen do you remember like did you put it out or like did it get picked up on you know i've heard a lot of stories with soundcloud or you know a blog grabbing it like like do you remember how it that yeah no well what really that because that was the project that I mentioned with that Judge Shaw's DJ. But originally, actually, that record started off as me doing an, an on spec remix for an act called Sunscreen. And uh, or the only thing I liked about that track was the vocal, and I completely redid all the music. And then this record label called Sirius, who later were owned by Universal, said, um, that we love everything in the record apart from the vocal. Uh, we've got Judge Shaw's work, so he'd love to do a vocal on this and just keep your music. And then it became a whole legal mess, is the oh. truth. But at that point in time, because he got into it, that meant it was going to be played on Radio 1 regularly and the label was going to get into it. And so that really formed the foundation for me embarking on a full-time career. Got you. And and the same question, I guess, for you too, Jono, is like when did it all change and when did it become, you know, the, oh, my gosh, this is working. Like, let's, we need to pursue this. I think, like, in childhood, there was an encouragement um point um i had this really great music teacher called sue Steele, and she was really positive and kind of just encouraged people who are into music to really pursue that and we won this competition as kids it's like eight or nine or something um it was like the the local county competition we i think we won it um or we came maybe, maybe we came third i can't remember we did very well, well wow. at that young and were you going yeah, up yeah, against yeah. people of your same age group or was it just like a the whole everyone can join our same yeah just a same age group okay I think. Or, or or i mean it would have been primary school so okay been, yeah seven to eleven or something you know a range but sure. i think there was that but then um i also had a job uh before i went to university that kind of put me off having a job <laughs> i think that was a big motivation and then um we were just working in the supermarket um but I, i'm really thankful for that um because it made me realize god i don't want to be doing that and um you know it's a very valuable job to do of course for you know for um, the world and everything but it was just it wasn't something i wanted to do and then when i went to university um i think the first true moment where i actually had some success that made me think oh maybe we could do this although i kind of always had the drive to kind of do it there was no question in a way it was just like how am i going to make this happen um but when we actually saw some success was i was working with parvo um who is part of above and beyond mm -hmm. and we we released our first record on our own label and juna beats mm -hmm. and we just pressed it up onto vinyl and sold a thousand copies and got our money back and then a wow small amount of profit and that was like oh wow you know we can actually do this alone um that that was i think the other thing to realize we could possibly just you know make enough to get by and then we did the next release and the next release and i suppose the big moment uh, in my career was when we remixed madonna because we remixed um track called what it feels like for a girl uh -huh. and uh we were asked to remix madonna and we had the cheek to ask um to remix that track rather than the first one they offered which i think was music um off that same album okay. which we didn't want to do because we didn't know what to do with it and so they said okay well, so we did what it feels like for a girl and then guy Ritchie, her husband at the time yeah wanted to use our mix in the video which i think was the first wow. time at that point perhaps that a, a remix had been used for such a big artist as the main mix you know mm -hmm. it's what radio we didn't know what was going on but we were being asked to make a different version of the mix which ended up being on the video 
um and we were kind of kept it was all very hush hush secret you know can you just change this can you do this I'm like why are we taking that sound out because it is a slightly different version on the on the video uh-huh. but i think that was the big moment for us if there was one sure certainly in above and beyond's career for me um but the interesting thing i suppose about my career that i always say is that it's not been you know this kind of spike of massive mm-hmm. success it's been steadily kind of growing and and um yeah that's you know but that was a moment i suppose where where things changed because i think it opened certain doors so much of this industry is about perception there's a lot of talented people out there um but you know once you're associated with madonna or the you know we did remixes as well for britney spears and Adamski and various yeah. other artists and and once you get into that world you know you're perceived differently and it does open doors so i think there was that but you know generally we we've, we've had records that went on the radio and stuff but yeah that's not been the kind of 10 poles of our success really it's been steadily building mm-hmm. building a fan base certainly in the above and beyond world so that was when i realized i think once we did you know those major label remixes you've just got to keep doing it i realized if we, if we just keep doing it we'll, we'll build something along the way sure yeah i mean it's not it's interesting that you bring up like kind of the steady growth because obviously that leads to lo- the longevity you both have had in in your careers because if it comes to like nowadays there's like the TikTok hit that goes and then you know can you follow that or this artist that created this one thing doesn't realize it's going to take off and they don't have a backlog or they just it's just so new to them and then it could just quickly you know fall off whereas yeah, I've talked to a few artists that it's like you know a lot of artists where it's like you know that slow build is the way to the, to keeping the longevity and showing that you can steadily put out music that that hits. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 obviously, I don't know what's going on in other people's heads, but from the conversations that I have, I get a sense that a lot of people are focused on those spikes and focused mm-hmm. on the, the quick hits and things. Not not uh, musical hits, but I mean, just you know, hits on TikTok and things. Yeah, I just feel exactly what you're kind of alluding to, Adam, which is that like if you focus on that bigger picture it's so much more valuable long-term it's not only for your career, but for yourself, because these, these things are out of our control to a great degree, you know, whether, whether someone uses your song on TikTok or whatever, I mean, there's things that you can maybe do to help that stuff, but is that really why we got into music? I don't, I'm not yeah, sure. It is. I don't know. I'm just going off of my, I have a 14 year old and he, that's all like, I mean, that their whole world is getting that those followers and getting that spike and getting that hit. And I'm always asking him like, well, then what happens after that? Like, what do you, you know, then you get it. And then what, you know, like, are you going to, you have to chase it and chase it and chase it. Whereas if I tell him like, build something of your own and, and watch it do this, not go, hopefully we'll throw paint at the wall until we hit one hit. And then, you know, but it's just a totally different, different world. But I, I'm curious. Okay. So you both met in, you said in Japan mm, yep. and decided then, you know, once you kind of understood, you know, obviously connected, you, you put out that one record and then mm. when do you come back together and go, okay, yeah, we should, we should work together again. Or from that moment on, were you always kind of aside from above and beyond and from your projects there and were you both, you know, in contact with each other working on music or no? So we uh, we did two records back in the 
back then, as well as Let the Light Shine, we did a track called Nocturnal Creatures, which we did a little bit after, about a year later or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and which, then, uh, which, funnily enough, there's a funny story behind that track because people keep borrowing bits from it. I don't know why, but we've had our publisher contacts us like about once a year. Every once a year, somebody plagiarizes it. It's, it's like it's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's an annual thing, an plagiarizing festival. Um, we, we, we literally <laughs> did, we did these two records and then... Um, we didn't do anything else until Joda, but we stayed in touch as friends uh, the whole time. Um, you know, I obviously I went off on this film and producing other artists tangent and John uh, continued with Above and Beyond, watched it expand and Juno Beats, of course. Um, uh, but we, we often stayed friends and, um, you know, and I think that's why, you know, and, and, and we talked about doing something and it was just what it wasn't one of those things that, was practical from a time point of view and really it was if anything or the i mean the the film um of course was then the first time that we then were brought back together mm-hmm. which was started yeah. what was it 2020 2019 2020 2020 so, and then yeah. and and then so that and that, and that brought us in john was like well you know this is what darren does so yeah very kindly said come on let's get just bring and which was great and then we were able to um rekindle that relationship and and realize that we we actually have a, a quite a lot of fun working together it's 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 um almost therapeutic sometimes to be able to work with someone who's like-minded and you know and has because there's a lot of um it's or not as far as a dopamine release mainly but you get you know when you're really working on something that's that connects to you musically it gives you an, you know, it, it's um, it's it's a really great thing when that comes together, and when you're doing it with a friend and you're building on something like that, it's it's what it's one of the main reasons I got into doing music. And when you do that, it's a great experience. And so we were able to rekindle that. Um, and then of course that we did that through the film. We had a lot of fun with that. And then the pandemic happened, and that then gave us another window to to do this new project, Joda, together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so oh, did it start with, did, did uh, the last glacier start then with, with, with you, Jono, or was it, and then you brought in, uh, you brought in Darren? Yeah. So what happened was. Oh, interesting. Um, I figured it was the other way around. <laughs> yeah. No, so what happened? I mean, obviously in the back of my mind, I, you know, Darren's and Darren's incredible orchestration, um, you know, string arranging, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, what happened was Craig, who directed Last Glaciers, had heard um, some of our music, uh, some of Above and Beyond's music, and he got in touch with us and said, "I'd love you to score, do the score for this um, for this uh, documentary film." And we thought that that would be great, a great thing to do. We've always wanted to do as Above and Beyond more, you know, film score stuff, and um, I realize that the thing the thing with this is you could you could i could have a crack at doing a film score and it would be all right um but i wanted to bring darren in because darren's incredible at film score stuff he's done it before and i just felt that if we're going to do this we're, we're so busy with our gigs as well mm-hmm. when we're working on this we need to spend our time properly you know focused working with someone who knows what they're doing and darren's the perfect guy to do that and so i suggested why don't we do it with darren so that's why we started working with darren on it 
um and it, it worked out to be a great collaboration also i wanted to work with darren again because i hadn't worked <laughs> with him for ages he's a great friend so um yeah it worked out really well we had a lot of fun doing it when i went to the studio a lot and yeah. it was nice it's also nice when you're you know when you get into someone else's studio it's just simply being in a different room is, is a wonderful thing as i'm yeah. sure you you know and um so it's great to go up to north london and and um work with darren and you know he's got everything set up with certain plugins and you know the the kind of mm. um expression controllers and everything for strings and all this kind of stuff because you know we had a budget obviously for the um for the score and so we didn't use live strings um we use can can strings if, if that's the correct term but um <laughs> we wrote all these pieces and then what happened really was was that can strings. Yeah. <laughs> we, we we um selling it which, which sound great though um <laughs> we we wrote all these pieces for the score and then what happened was craig hadn't finished the film uh the director so we were sort of twiddling our thumbs we didn't really want to write anymore or change the length of things because you, as you know when you shoot to picture you know what you're making is obviously influenced by what you're seeing and if, if the scenes mm -hmm. were going to change we kind of had all of the rough sketches for the whole film we were at a good point with it and, and i said to darren you know there's no point in us doing any more work on this or well, we, we both agreed it i don't know if i said it to you but um so we took a little break from it and i said to darren why don't you come down to the studio come down to my studio for a change of scenery just like he'd given me by me going yeah. over there mm -hmm. and so um he darren came down and we jammed out a track together which is uh we find us no shape of your heart, of your heart. and then we oh, did, wow we, so yeah we, we just were jamming out we, we had no agenda at all which is a nice place to be i think musically sometimes um you know if i'm doing stuff for above and beyond as much as i would want to get rid of the baggage of you know knowing the gigs we've done where our music gets played can I do that? There's always going to be there in the subconscious. Mm -hmm. Whereas doing, you know, working together on this, on those tracks, for example, I just mentioned, we find ourselves under Shave Your Heart. We jammed those together, not really knowing what they were. It's like, okay, we find ourselves, let's do something at 110 BPM. Um, you know, it's different. We just try to do something a bit slower for a change, which I wouldn't normally gravitate towards um, with Above and Beyond because that music's played in clubs and you know it's of a certain tempo generally so certain things like that happened and we were jamming out ideas firing up all the old analog gear that sometimes hadn't been turned on as much as i would have liked to because oh of wow okay and sure so that was really nice. sorry no i was just agreeing with you like how doing the analog route that's really cool because right, yeah, i lots of I, played in and out of time because when i came down that time because I had only just started doing the thing. Because I just started mm. doing, I just had just done a project. You did overture, that, didn't you? Oh, a track yeah. overture, and I yeah. did it by using pretty much all the analog gear that I had lying around. And then I, I had a lot of fun doing it. And, and actually, mm. it's sometimes there's something about the the way you perform sometimes because it's more hands on. You you end up mm -hmm. you know working with a mouse. You'll think you know you'll think very. It's a very linear process. You'll go right. I need a little bit more maybe open up this filter and you'll draw a line. Whereas when you actually got your hands on a keyboard, you go, oh, this is a bit of fun. Let's throw this on. Mm -hmm. And so, and I realized doing don't that. Overthink it and well. You don't overthink it. And that actually also, it kind of, it makes, it, there's, it's more organic and the mixing is more organic. And so I kind of had that in my head when, when I came mm -hmm. to see you that time. 
and I yeah, think you were that, sort of saying, "Hey, let's turn something let's on." Turn, let's turn, look at it. <laughs> it's all off. Beautiful, beautifully <laughs> restored, very expensive vintage gear sitting here, not doing anything, and it's like maybe this is sacrilege. Let's just get this stuff do yeah. it working again. And and I think we we that kind of was the catalyst, wasn't it, for everything that followed? Yeah, yeah, and 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 I think you know. I, I can't remember whether it came from both of us or one of us, but it was, we were very keen to sort of like just do whatever, you know, mm-hmm. it was. So, and then lockdown happened and it was like, okay, well, we're definitely doing whatever now. All the clubs are oh, shut. Okay. <laughs> Making any yeah. dance music, you know? So I think we took a couple of weeks off while the government sort of worked out its strategy. And then, you know, oh, it's, you know, you're allowed to go to work together. There were certain rules and we sort of worked around them as best as we could. And, and then we, we sort of, put together the Joda album in the sense of we probably wrote about 15, 15 demo songs and they were pretty much like jams, weren't they? I mean, yeah, you know, we'd run a drum pattern off a drum machine like the old days or something, you know, yeah. and, and and kind of record that in and then jam along to that. And we, we ended up with tons of tracks and tracks of, of, of bits of synths and stuff and, you know, like just loops of filtering bass lines and yeah. things. And then, then the next step for each of those tracks was to kind of, go through it and edit it all which was mm-hmm. kind of in some ways less fun than the first bit but uh, but but still yeah good fun. it gets gradually as, as you have to mix the thing in. yeah that's the work arduous but um but what i think was good was also because one of the things that you can be you can foul almost victim to your success in this business because say if you have like a big project big dance project and then you have an audience then you know you're the audience you kind of almost you you get this kind of expectation they want to hear a certain thing and you end up going well i better i've got to write my music at this tempo i've got to write it you know i'm i'm even thinking about what key i'm going to write it because of how well it works on the, the sound system and you know and then and so and so it becomes you kind of almost end up compartmentalizing what mm-hmm. we, we got into this business to do and what we love about it in the first place and so joda was an opportunity i think just to kind of let 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 out some steam <laughs> literally and go well let, you know let's not do that in four four let's do that in seven four or let's put let's make this synthetic breaks or you know or, or i love this track a bit and let's throw some of that in and so it, it was a kind of it was a very freeing experience in, creatively i think in some ways though actually the, the track that's in seven four which is uh, fall away it was accidentally in seven four actually when we think about it because we i think we had the piano riff well we were doing the and riff then, and then i remember yeah. saying the meat i like the meter of this it's quite yeah. interesting let's do the track like that and sure then you know you would never understand anything that was amazing uh, so um thanks um the um so anyway yeah we had the <laughs> we had this idea anyway and so and so it evolved from from being a bit more I've got a bit more bit more out of the box in general I think uh, it's true what Darren's saying that's um it was kind of like uh, the process was let's throw the paint at the wall and let's make sense of it afterwards and there you know there does come a point where you're like okay well maybe that's a bit long and you have to make it you know you don't want it to be- end up just being a big splurge of jamming um. So then, so then we, then we started putting vocals on the stuff as well, and you know, kind yes. of developing yeah. it. And then, yeah. and then I think on that one, that's an important point because because Jono, you know, Jono just basically got up on the mic one day. I'd had heard um, 
some of his the tracks he had been working on before that. Um, and I thought, you know what, John, you can you can sing, mate. And then and then so when we started working on this stuff, uh, he got he was getting up on the mic and 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 jamming ideas. And I thought that's this sounds. And I'll be honest, I'm quite fussy about my choice of the ton- because tonality and the, the sound of t- for me and I think for John as well. This, the tone for both of us, the tone of a voice is so very very important when you're work- working on music, and we we tend to generally avoid things that are tropes like th- that are too big or too obvious. And when I heard John sing on the record, I thought this 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 work there's a symbiosis between what we've done musically and and your voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that was great as well. And so and I think over time, I think you quite even more confidence, right? And 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 we just gained, you know, started really getting a sound together. And 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 you know, ever since and everyone's gone. It's hard to imagine you not on the records now. In a way, like, you know. So it's uh, that that was great the way that developed. It was a lot of fun doing it, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, well, there, there's a lot of questions I want to touch on real real quick because um, it sounds like this was the first time in a while that you've both had the opportunity to kind of just start totally from scratch and not have any expectation of what you were going to do because with, you know, both from both of your, you know, backgrounds and and successes, it's like, you know, what's working. And if you put out a record with above and beyond, for example, and it sounds nothing like anything you guys have ever did that your audience might be like, Whoa, like, like jarred by the, the, you know, the product, even though it could be the best thing ever, but it still might be, you know, kind of something unfamiliar when it Mm. comes to your audience in that way, where is, is with this project, it was, let's just do, it's almost back to square one. Like, oh, we do whatever we want and see what happens here. Yeah. And even, you know, even with above and beyond, I do try to do that, but there's always an anchor point, I suppose, sort of like anchoring it back into the world that it sits in. Right. Um, yeah. Not saying that you put the same record out every time, but it's like you, there's that. probably this, there's got to be some sort of parameters. You know, yeah, exactly. That you, that you, 100%. if you go too far outside of it, then it might be, oh, okay, that's interesting or too interesting yeah. or too, too unfamiliar. You're pushing at the edges with, with above and beyond, say, like, you know, or testing that edge. Mm. Whereas with Joda, there, there aren't any edges. You know? Right. Was, okay. What have we got here? We've, we we made the stuff, and then we then we tried to put a few edges in afterwards, if you like, <laughs> to try and sort of work out what it is, and then, and, and then we kind of found the sound of it afterwards, mm. and, and and kind of brought it together because the album goes on a bit of a journey. It's not, um, it, it you know when we put the first couple of records out, the word that was being banded around was synthwave all the time, and I suppose fair enough. I can see why people say that, but. I think when people mm-hmm. get the album, they'll be a bit surprised by what's on there because it's, you know, like the opening track, the opening track is almost like influenced by like Genesis or, you know, like, oh, cool. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. I love Phil Collins and yeah. Genesis and, and the, a lot of the vocal effects we use and stuff like that, are, you know, influenced by, by yeah, that. Yeah, so a bit of that with Radiohead but, with like, it's got all these different elements, isn't it? So you mm-hmm. kind of, you know, it's not one thing. Like no, it's a, yeah, I mean, I can hear the synth wave as, like on dark strings and like the earlier ones, but then even with, but closer doesn't sound like that. I mean, closer is totally, uh, uh, it's or not as electro side, isn't it? That one? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, 
I saw someone calling that an 80s something or other as well. I was thinking, is it 80s, that one? <laughs> that, that one, does, that sounds the less, least, I mean, even <laughs> shape, uh, shape of Your Heart doesn't sound 80s-ish to me. It's more, I, I, not even 80s, but I guess Dark Strings just kind of has that more like, like the tone of your voice in the song and, and the drive of it has a little bit of that synth, you know, synth wave sound, Depeche Mode, uh, New right. Order-ish. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's this is it, and so with with the closer, it's the closer broaders onto that kind of. I think it was slightly more. Le- still uses the vintage synths though mm-hmm. that that we talked about, like the Juno One Six, the Jupiter. We still use those synths in it, mm-hmm. but the vibe of it is a bit more kind of driving and a more contemporary electro feel. And and that and then when you see the album, then you'll suddenly, like you said, you'll hear things that are a bit more rocky, or you'll hear a bit more breaksy. And, and in one instance, a bit more trancey. So, um, you know, there's there are all these other areas that still, I feel like the whole thing has a lot of um, uh, the flow to it from beginning to end. I think we were very, very much focused on that. And I think I hope people appreciate that we wanted them to go on a bit of a journey with this thing. Yeah, um, but I mean, the, I, vo- the vocals, the types of chord progressions, the synths, they all tie it together in mm. a sense. When you hear the album, it, it, I think it, it ties it together because... There's a yeah. There's a bit of glue in there. There is yeah. I use this analogy. We were actually talking earlier, and I use this analogy, which is where, where I said you could imagine an artist painting two completely different pictures, but because he's done them both with a certain type of watercolor, it, there, there is that symbiosis. So oh, you sure. might do complete things, but you've still got this feeling of connectivity. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what we wanted to have with the album even down to making it in the same room yeah the room when, exactly yeah. The, the, the studio that you work in will produce just just because of how you perceive stuff it will produce mm. a different you know different reactions the way you react to what you're hearing in the room so the fact that we you know made it in that one studio pretty much and we say that that gives it a house sound as well as i think yeah. and, and the gear as well you know mm-hmm. we 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 mixed it out of the box um you know there's all sorts of debates about whether you know whether that matters for some people and stuff like that but it does give a different sound that's for sure um and it makes you think work in a different way as well which is the thing isn't mm. it you think of you come out things slightly differently yeah as i said when you when you're working out outside of the box as, as an outside not sitting in front of the computer the whole time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and was this were you working on Andrea before the pandemic hit or it became a project due to the pandemic it now you have all this time arguably due to the pandemic but i think we started the first we we had we did the first two tracks maybe or first at least one of the tracks just just before it oh, hit yeah. but I it was think, like let's just working together like some let's just try to write something here and then it became exactly. a, a project the circumstances enabled it because uh, you know tony was away in in miami parvo w- went out away around the world on a boat and I was stuck here in London on my own. Um, and, you know, we had the studio and it was, it was empty. And it's like, well, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, and, you know, personally, like mentally, I couldn't face making dance music because it's, it's funny because I used to listen to dance music um, when I was a kid. I had a, a copy of the Paul Oakenfold Goa mix on radio, which was on Radio 1. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that got me into to dance music. And then I went to clubs and heard it. And then losing that connection during the pandemic with clubs made me not want to make, I didn't want to, I just didn't fancy making dance music. I really felt like, oh, this is, this is an opportunity here to actually have a break and do something different and hopefully freshen up dance music afterwards for myself, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's I really feel I don't know how many musicians are like this, but I, I feel that it's important to have different projects mm. going on um, so that, you know, it keeps the other things fresh. You know, mm-hmm. if you do something else, it just keeps that other world that you're operating in fresh. And that was a massive value of Joda in itself to mm. get to do that album during the lockdown and, and just to sort of like turn the dance floor off for a bit <laughs> right like exercise different muscles in in exactly. you know yeah. creatively and a friend of mine you know you, you sort of said a similar phrase earlier but a friend of mine um in canada who heard the album he, he was really into it and he said um it sounds like you had something to get off your chest and <laughs> <what> <laughs> i don't think that's true it's, it's like um it was almost an opportunity to to get the music that you love from your entire history into a record in a sense. Mm, sure. Okay. I love it. I, when you, when you, I only have a few more questions for you guys, but this has been so much fun. I appreciate your time. Um, wait, when you had it, when you decided, was it like a decision that you had made, uh, John, was to, to sing on the record or was it, it just kind of happened? Like you got up there and, and Darren's like, Oh no, you sound good. Let's do this. Well, I think what happened, I mean, Darren sort of mentioned that what I'd written a song I when we were working on the um the, the film, I brought it over to Darren's house, this song I'd written, and he, you seem to like it. Yeah, yeah and, yeah. and um then that that's kind of how I was doing the vocals on that song, I should point out. Um and it was kind of all we had as well. I mean, sure, we could have sent stuff off to people to sing on it. It was firstly it was a lot of fun doing it. I, I felt well, I don't want to just sing on these records in an indulgent way. At the same time, it was really good fun doing it. And without Darren's encouragement to do it, I wouldn't have done it because I just, it just feels self-indulgent by nature to me for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but it was really enjoyable to do and it's, it's kind of accidental, but yeah, it was very cathartic um, writing the songs together as mm. well. We, you know, we would, we would write the songs, you know, we'd go for a walk up the road, walking the dog, London was dead you know there was no one around no cars it was just crazy but we'd, we'd sit in the park and and um write these stories and and you know turn them turn them into songs really um and that was really Got good all the anguish coming out <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah no that so doing the vocals it was a really important thing to do I think and um it's been nice to get some positive reception from it uh, I think it was kind of a bit scary it definitely was a bit scary but oh, yeah you know it's, it's like i've got the utmost respect for people who sing on anything because i find it myself a really hard thing to do um well super vulnerable i mean if somebody thinks that you suck at singing or like oh <laughs> it's like you can't change your voice you yeah, can work on it but like, like you know, it's like right well, yeah even um, like derek said it's like tone like the tone of someone's voice can't be changed like you could be the you could hit every note but if your tone or like just the way your voice sounds doesn't sound appealing to a lot of people then you're right. probably not going to make it as a singer <laughs> not not everybody's going to like it and and you know you have to accept that i think when you do vocals on something it's like but there are there are plenty of different types of vocalists there are vocalists who just are incredible singers like adele mm-hmm. and then there's vocalists who are on sort of like new wave 80s records who maybe they have they're not the best technical singer but they've got a sound and you know so there's 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 room for all different flavors of vocalists and there's not one right way of doing it and and 
sort of accepting that and realizing that helps, I think, because mm-hmm. then it's like, well, you know, not everyone's going to like it. Here it is, you know, but like try and try and keep it authentic and try and just do you. And then that's all you can do and, and see what happens. And um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I love it. I love it. I, and I love that you guys are doing a full album, which is something that a lot, a lot of people are doing anymore. And just that I love, there's something about putting a whole album on and hearing it from front to back and, you know, the, track choices that you make and, and why the first song was where it is or the fifth is where it is like i think that's super cool and i'm sure that took a lot or an immense amount of time just you know tweaking oh should we move this song to here, oh, or to here? you're spot on yeah a lot of tweaking because we, we were very conscious of the keys and things like that because sometimes like it's the same with the dj set sometimes you sometimes you want to keep stuff in the same key to get that flow Sometimes mm-hmm. you want to move a fifth or, you know, go around the circle of fifths or something. And then other times you, you maybe you want to, you know, jar with people and make a slight clash or, you know, go up a semitone or down. I can't, I don't know if we did that particular thing on the album, but it, you know, there's, there's moments where you want to move and moments where you kind of want to keep it smooth. And we did, we did think a lot about that and it was really important to get it to flow. And then there's other challenges that follow on from that because, um, because one of the main platforms music is released on is Spotify. Mm-hmm. If you make stuff that overlaps, if you release those tracks as singles, they are not as self-contained, obviously, because there might be a little trail of something. Oh, right. Last record. And so we had to kind of think about that sometimes as well, because you kind of want to have one version of the song if, or, you know, maximum two versions, if there's an edit or something, um, you know, and that is, I suppose, one of those areas where you are thinking about the external industry, the business of music, in a sense. Mm-hmm. But for us, it was important to kind of think about those things afterwards, which meant that we did have some problems, you know, with that stuff later on, didn't we? Yeah. That we had to kind of resolve. But um, but yeah, it's I love doing albums because it just gives you mentally so much more freedom. It's, it's and you can express so much more. You don't. Not every track needs to feel like a single. There's so many reasons. And and I think that um, it's it's really important that I think I was I was watching something on marketing um, the other day. And they were talking about how brands do things that are beyond the um, how can I put it, you know, that seemingly loss leading, but to make the the brand bigger. And I think you know, so what if an album isn't numbers wise always important as it used to be? But I think what it says about an artist is is really important and. And longer term, like coming back to our point we were discussing earlier, you you pointed out, it's like you're growing something longer term and, you know, everyone, not everyone, but there's there's a culture of chasing, chasing the short term, isn't there? Especially with, you know, scrolling through stuff fast on social media, videos getting shorter, all this, that kind of culture. And I feel that there's room within the world for the, I mean, podcasts prove it, right? You know, people Mm -hmm. listen to podcasts that are a lot longer. Yeah um there's room for that in music as well it may may not be as visible to all the metrics all the time but but there are people out there who really enjoy listening to an album that was crafted from start to finish um and that's important to people and we we shouldn't focus on the lowest common denominator i think you know it's it's not helpful for music as an art (laughs) Mm -hmm. i completely agree it's like having 500 hardcore fans that will listen to the album full and buy it and come see you versus 10,000 people that know one single and could care less about going to watch you guys or, or even invest in your, your group at all. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think we, we get, I feel like we're getting some of that from the responses we've had. 
Mm-hmm. Like people really, maybe not have everyone, but the people that have responded have really been uber enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. Like, which is kind of for me is what, job done. Job in a way, yeah. You know, I want. I know we're not going to make everyone happy with this. That's, you never can make everyone happy with, it, with everything. It's the nature of the beast. But just the fact that it's connected that well with certain people, I think that's that's a great step. Yeah, I think I think in terms of the external sort of success or you know connection to the project, that's the thing. The biggest thing for me, the most exciting thing, is when someone understands something that you were trying to convey and they get it. You know, mm-hmm. it's not about quantity, but when you when you see that someone someone got it ah uh, you know you know th- that's that's a nice feeling because you you've conveyed your message in the right way then um you know yeah, yeah. i love it well well but thank you so much uh darren jono for for doing this this has been so much fun to, to hear your story and i love the the record and and what you guys have done so far and i can't wait to hear the whole thing and um again thank you i have one more Question for you both. I want to know if you have any advice for aspiring artists. I think the, I mean, something I would always say is to obviously listen to other people by all means, but I think what, what you've got to do is stay on your own path and keep at it. Um, because I think there's like, we've sort of been discussing it in this podcast quite a bit, but the, there's a tendency to, to think you need to be copying someone else or doing something else. And what people really connect with is artists who, who are themselves and, you know, deliver that artistically. And, and, you know, even if you get a rejection from a record label, whether it be our record label or someone else's, it doesn't mean your music's not good enough. It just means it wasn't right for that label and um, just keep at it and, you know, keep, stay true to your, your path. I think. Yeah. I mean, I, and I would say that, um, this idea of the right time in the right place. Some people think they, they think that's how it works. And the truth is, it's like the right time can be at any time. So, you know, yes, if you don't keep doing it, you, you might, you know, there, there will be tomorrow and there'll be the next day. And it's like John has said, you want to keep, if you're passionate about it, do it because you love it. You know, don't, don't do it, do it because you're, you know, and then, if you keep at it and you work hard enough, I'm not going to say it's going to happen to everyone because it's not, mm-hmm. but you would have been satisfied. You would have given your best shot and, you know, and you would have tried. And that's, I think that's the most anyone can ask for anyone in a way, mm-hmm. you know, that you give it, you, you work at it and you keep, keep going at it.